I'm going to go ahead and start us off in a word of prayer, if you'll join me. So, um, dear God, just thank you for um, all of us being here this morning. Um, this is not an easy topic for a lot of us to talk about. Um, and I just thank you that uh, for giving us this opportunity to sit down and, and talk about some tough stuff. Um, God, I just ask that you would um, speak to us, speak to our hearts and our minds this morning, um, and just help all of us to grow in, um, in love for others and in uh, self-awareness of ourselves. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So thank you for coming. Um, hopefully a few of you got to at least go back and look at or participate in uh, this activity we had going on in the back where we're thinking about how we can define white culture um, and what different types of white subcultures we might be able to think about. Um, and this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, I've tried to do several times, and I always feel like it's rather difficult. So um, if you felt like it was difficult to try to figure out how to define white culture, you're not alone. Um, and one of the things that you may have found yourself thinking about right away that I often find myself thinking about is why are we do why 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 is this not plural right why are we saying white culture instead of white cultures because you know there are so many different people with so many different backgrounds um, that we throw into this category of white um, and so as I've thought about that I've realized um, that the same might be said of a lot of other cultures that we talk about in the U S um, the term Latino is in a very broad tent, right, with people from lots of different countries. Um, black is a very broad term that can apply to immigrants, uh, recent immigrants, as well as people who have been here for decades, perhaps descended from slaves. Um, there's lots of variety within groups, um, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to try to create these categories, is that we have um, so many different groups. So. We're going to uh, talk about this a little bit more and dive into some of this more uh, in a couple different ways throughout today. Um, so I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of what we have planned for today. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in. Does that sound good? All right. So first of all, we're gonna, I'm going to talk just a little bit about a little bit of background on race and what we mean by that. Um, and some goals that we have for today. Um, and then we're going to, going to have a panel with five people from our um, different congregations under Grace DC. Um, and we're going to have a, a conversation. And there we'll try to have a little bit of time at the end for some audience questions, um, as well as addressing some questions that I've talked with the panelists already about. Um, and then we are going to have some individual silent reflection time. And then we're going to break up into small groups and discuss those. And then Glenn is going to wrap everything in a ribbon and tie it at the end, right? So there's a lot we're trying to get done. Um, so hopefully uh, it doesn't feel rushed, and hopefully this is a really good and encouraging time for, for all of us. So um, all right, so a few, uh, a few th words just to get us kicked off. So first of all, um, this is a huge topic. There's no way that we can cover all of it today. Um, and so the goal, our goal here today, those of us who have who've been working on organizing it, is to try to start a conversation. Um, and so hopefully this will be the beginning of helping you to think about things that you may have already been thinking about, um, but maybe encouraging you to think about them in new ways and start talking about them with one another, um, because we think that, that that's beneficial. Um, two, another, two specific goals that we have for this event are to increase cultural self-awareness for everyone in the room um, and to learn a Christ-centered, biblically grounded approach to being white in America. Um, and we know there's a lot of discussions going on in the country about race and we want to ask how does the Bible and being a believer fit into that? How can we talk about this differently as a believer? Um, what should we take from those conversations and what do we maybe need to add to those conversations or leave behind from those conversations. So um, we're probably not all going to agree on all of these things. Um, there's going to be lots of different beliefs uh, and understandings of how society works. And I suspect that not everyone speaking up here at the front of the room would agree on a lot of things when it comes to 
um, race and, and how to think about it or how to talk about it. Um, but uh, we hope that we can see, we can all agree on some ways to apply the gospel to this and to think about um, the importance of loving others uh, in this world where you know, we, we do talk and think about race um, often. Um, another thing I wanted to just mention really briefly is that um, most of the faces that you'll see up here at the front of the room today are white. Um, and it hasn't, I, I did want to let you know that three of us who have been sort of, I guess there's other people, there, so many people have been involved in planning this in one way or another, um, but Mazare and Alicia and I, um, Mazare and Alicia, can you wave in the back? <laughs> um, the three of us have been planning this together, um, and if you've been at Grace downtown, you probably know that the cultural intelligence team plans lots of events, and most of them don't focus on being white. Um, so this is what we view as part of a larger conversation about cultures and intelligence um, and, and how to interact with people who are different from us within our church. Um, and this, this is just one piece of that. All right. Finally, what is it, the, why did we come up with this name, the unspoken culture? Well, one of the reasons we, we t came up with that name is that there are a lot of events um, we have Black History Month. There are lots of times when we specifically identify another racial group or ethnic group um, and have some sort of conversation about them. We use words and try to figure out how to describe them. Um, it's less common that we hear explicit discussion of what does it mean to be white and what does white culture look like? Um, so that's why, why we call this the unspoken culture, um, this event. So, all right, just a, I wanted to give a really brief introduction to some of the background of how we think about race. Um, I'm a social scientist. Uh, I, I teach at American University, and race is one of the topics that I've studied. Um, and so I just wanted to give a little bit of information from what I've learned about race um, in the academic world. So what, the first thing is usually social scientists will say that race is what we call a social construct, meaning that there's no obvious biological definition of what race is. Um, instead, it's something that we define as a society. And there are a couple of reasons that, that most people would, would argue that that's how race is, is defined. Um, so one of them is that there are lots of physical characteristics that we associate with race, right? The most obvious one that I think we think about is skin color, right? But um, we also think about things like hair texture um, and certain facial features that tend to be associated with different races. Um, but and, and there's tons of differences in how individuals appear physically. And many of them are inherited, and sometimes they differ from region to region across the world. Um, but there's so much variety in humans. And what racial categories do is break us down into a finite number of categories, right? It's not saying there's a whole continuum of skin color. It's saying, all right, we have categories of black, white, Asian, um, maybe Latino. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. So what, a what saying, saying when we say race is a social construct, what we mean is that those categories that we've come up with are something that we as a society use and have decided on. Um, they're not inherent that we would, we would break things up in those ways. So one reason that we think that, that race is a social construct is because there's little consistency across time or across place in terms of the racial categories that we use. So just a couple of examples. In the past, many of you probably know, um, there were lots of groups that are considered white today that weren't considered white in the past when they were new immigrant groups. So Italians, Irish, Eastern Europeans often weren't considered part of being white in America. Um, if we look to present day, we can look around the world. In Latin America, the, the predominant sort of racial categories, though they differ from country to country. Um, one, one entry that I found on Wikipedia talked about, listed out percentages using these racial categories, white, mestizo, mulatto, Amerindian, black, and mixed. If we look to South Africa, um, we see the main categories that their sort of statistical bureau uses are African, white, colored, Asian, and other. Um, so there's, there's lots of different ways that we can think about categorizing humans in um, sort of racial categories. Um, and there, there are lots more examples that we could talk about um, if, if, if anyone's interested in, in chatting about that sometime. Um, how we draw these categories is often arbitrary and political. Um, particularly when certain privileges have been afforded to groups 
um, certain groups, particularly when we think about discriminatory laws. Um, there have been court cases that have been fought in the US over who gets defined as white and who doesn't, um, because whites used to have a lot of privileges under the law, of course, um, that, that weren't afforded to other groups. Um, all right, so that's, that's, that's what we mean by, by social constructs. So if this is all sort of something we just sort of agree on as a society that isn't a natural way to describe biology, why do we end up using racial categories at all? Um, well, I don't have, uh, not everyone agrees on whether or not we should use racial categories, but um, there are some reasons I think that this, these labels end up, often end up getting used. Um, but one thing as Christians I think that we can all probably agree on is that our primary identity should be in Christ, right? Not with our racial group um, or our, our ethnic identity. Um, so I think that's, that's really important for us to remember. Um, but when we do think about actually using racial categories as ways to sometimes um, talk about people or about society, um, I thought it would be interesting just to, to maybe bring up a, a couple of things. So first of all, it, children at a very young age naturally start talking about physical differences. And if you have kids, you've probably noticed this, and it's, you know, you've, lots of us have seen or heard stories of children at the grocery store blurting out things, right, that their parents are horrified about, um, about race or something like that. Um, and uh, studies show that children as young as, or babies as young as six months start reacting differently to faces of different skin colors. Um, which I think is really interesting. Um, but one study that I've read that I thought was really fascinating that I thought I'd share real quick is that um, talks about how children sort of learn that race is a taboo subject around 10 to 11 years old. So what they did in this study is they gave kids um, a categorization task. And the categorization task, they were working in teams, is easier if you talk out loud about race or about physical differences between people. And what they found is that when they gave this task to eight to nine-year-olds, uh, the eight to nine-year-olds were better at this task than the 10 to 11-year-olds. And the reason that they were better is the eight to nine-year-olds didn't have a filter yet. Most of them talked about race and physical difference, but the 10 to 11-year-olds, even though they weren't instructed to in this study, were reluctant to talk about the physical characteristics of the faces that they were trying to sort. Um, and so, uh, I think it's, it's interesting to sort of look to children sometimes when we're, when we're thinking about, about race um, and how we, we develop beliefs and, and, and notice race. Um, and then finally, racial identities in the U.S., I mean, it's, it's inescapable. If you look at polling data, uh, there's so many different attitudes, so many different experiences that people have had based on race. And so as a society, even though this isn't a biologically meaningful term necessarily, these categories aren't um, on a social level these categories have a lot of meaning to a lot of people. So, um, all right, enough from me. Let's go ahead and move to our panel. So if our panelists could go ahead and come up to the front, um, we're gonna get started with our panel discussion. All right. So thank all of you for being here. I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and just go down and introduce ourselves briefly. Um, tell us your name and, and what uh, Grace community you're a part of. Um, and then maybe you can tell us something about if there's um, any major experiences you've had that have sort of caused you to reckon with race maybe in a way that you didn't have to before. So we'll just go down the line if that's all right. Hi, I'm Chris Moore. I'm at uh, Grace Mosaic. Um, several formative things in my life around this topic are uh, living overseas for a number of years uh, and then having uh, a daughter who is black. Yes. Good morning. Um, yes, it is on. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary Catherine, and um, I go to Grace Meridian Hill, um, and I'm on the diaconate there. And then um, I've had, I think, a lot of formative experiences um, around the topic of my whiteness and kind of understanding that. Um, I grew up in a very wealthy white flight suburb um, in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, then I studied in the Middle East for a while. I began to be aware of my whiteness um, and worked in the Middle East for um, some years. 
And then um, I moved to DC and worked for three years for um, an outpatient mental health clinic where all of, mo all of my supervisors, most of my coworkers, and most of my um, clients were black. And now I'm in my fourth year doing my PhD at Howard. Um, and um, so being in that environment too, just Howard being an HBCU, a historically black college university, um, it's just been very eye-opening to like my own white racial identity, so. Hi, I'm Robert Henderson. I go to the Mosaic um, congregation. Um, my wife is black and we have two sons uh, who are biracial and we will kind of see how their identity forms um, as they uh, grow older, their racial identity forms. Um, and so uh, that's where I will be speaking from uh, today. Or these other microphones in front of us. Uh, I'm Tom, I am at Grace Downtown. Um, and I would say the three maybe major points that have helped me think through it. Uh, one, growing up in the South, in South Carolina. Two, uh, moving into the city 11 years ago into a majority um, African-American neighborhood. And then three, um, my son is from Ethiopia. And so looking at the world through his eyes. Hi, um, my name is Anna Laura Grant. I am at Grace Meridian Hill. Um, and I guess um, two things that I think of as um, being pretty formative for me are, one, working as a teacher in um, a DC charter school um, with a mixed race population and mixed race um, faculty for the last five years, um, and primarily teaching students of color. That's been um, very formative for me. Um, and then also, um, I am in a master's program um, studying uh, race and the church, basically, and so I, I think a lot about this. Awesome. And um, maybe, so Anna Laura is going to answer our first question, so maybe we can start using that mic down there so we don't have to pass back and forth. That's perfect, yeah. Um, so, Anna Laura, you volunteered to answer this question. Have you ever been reluctant to talk about race? Why or why not? Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, okay, so yeah. I'll <laughs> It might work best if you take it off the Maybe the take stand. it off. Okay. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Sure. I don't usually talk with a microphone, so... Um, Okay, so have I ever been reluctant to talk about race? Um, I think that, um, honestly, it wasn't even something that was in my worldview until about college. I've been very aware of my cultural background. Um, my mom is from Italy, and so I've grown up bicultural. But um, it wasn't until college taking a race class where I learned that race was a biological, was not biological, was a social construct, like we talked about before, that I honestly became pretty furious that that wasn't part of my education um, in high school. And so kind of my world opened up, and it made me rethink um, a lot of things. And then... Um, from that experience, it, it kind of compelled me to, um, for I guess race to be something that's not really something that I can even decide if I want to talk about or not. It's something I must talk about. Um, so from that, I had pretty much, um, or it makes me think of two stories that I wanted to share. Um, one is part of um, one of those transformative experiences um, that really showed me, um, or that was simply put, transformative. Um, after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, um, I was part of a racial reconciliation, interracial dialogue group um, in um, the school where I work. Um, so we're about 50-50 black and white um, faculty members, about 10 people, um, 10 to 15 people, and we dialogued together for two years. Um, and that experience completely changed my life and completely changed the way that I view things. Um, there were so many stories from, from friends of mine that I heard that I had no idea were a part of their daily lives. Um, things to speak generally, like um, people who slowed down or, or drove under the speed limit on purpose to not be stopped by um, police, or people being followed in stores, um, people um, feeling invisible as they shared things, even in, in, in faculty meetings, etc. And I just was blown away that this, these were parts of the daily life of people that I call friends. Um, the second thing that also happened as a result of my school, um, or working in this school, was um, 
about uh, a year into that dialogue, I had um, two students um, that were stopped by uh, police walking from our school to the metro station. Um, they were stopped by police that were dressed without um, uniform, um, whatever that's called, like undercover, yeah. Um, and they were held up at gunpoint with no explanation and searched. And these boys were 14. They're some of the sweetest, kindest people that I have ever had the privilege of teaching. And when they were they were terrified. And they were sharing this experience with me of not like, Miss Grant, why did this happen? Why were they, they didn't tell me why they were doing this and why were they using a gun? Couldn't they just ask me if I was at X place or, or whatever? Um, and I as I was listening to them, um, felt a terror, I guess, and a sadness and a lament that I hadn't felt before. Because these are students that I loved, that I interacted with on a daily basis, and I thought, kept thinking to myself, what if? What if they weren't these wonderfully polite students that had just followed the directions, they didn't speak back, they followed and did exactly what the police officers had said? What if? They had said something wrong. What, there's a million what ifs that could have led to a situation where they, where they died, honestly. Um, and that was, um, it was mortifying to me and, and, and deeply um, emotional. And so both of those experiences kind of led me to two questions, or two question um, something, which was, first of all, um, why in that dialogue group was I so quick at first to want to explain away the experiences of racism that my friends were speaking about? I always, my first instinct initially was, hmm, well, maybe that person was just having a bad day, or you know, maybe it was blah, 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 and just trying to come up, like, to justify anything as, as not being racism. Um, and, and then it kind of, I realized, like, these, Maybe the better attitude to have was one of just humility and believing. Um, I don't need to explain away the things that my friends are sharing with me. I just need to believe them. Um, the second thing that they, it made me think about was um, why did it take why did it take me having experiences with friends and with students for this to be important to me and for this to resonate with me emotionally um, and and deeply with me. Um, I. I think about that, it causes a little bit of guilt, um, white guilt, I guess you could say, on, on my part, and I think that that's okay, too. I should be guilty about things that are sinful, and um, I think it was wrong that it, I needed to have a personal interaction for me to, to realize that these issues are important. Great, thank you, Anna Laura, for sharing. Um, all right, next question is, we're gonna ask is, do you think it's important to talk about race, um, specifically in the church, and why or why not? So we had a we had Tom and Chris both offered to talk about this. Who wants to go first? Go ahead, brother. All right. Um, I was thinking about this question over the last week, and I think it's important to both think about the why is it important for the church to talk about it, and how should the church talk about it? Um, because we're different, right? We're different from the culture. We're believers. We have dual citizenship. We have citizenship with our Father in heaven, and we have citizenship here on earth. Mm. And so we need to think a little bit differently about these issues than the culture. And I think we also have to do it because this is a hard topic, right? Like in our email group, um, we were given the questions, who wants what? And Anna Laura ended up with that one. She wanted it, but all of us avoided the first question, which is, you know, have you ever not wanted to talk about race, right? But And yet here we are on this panel. Um, and we have a church where we have a, a bunch of different folks that are coming in with different understandings and experiences, and yet we want to go together as a body to understand this. It doesn't do us any good if the head nodders go forward and leave everybody else in the dust, right? It doesn't, it doesn't help us to be unified or reconciled as a body if that's the way we go. And so I think especially as an elder, as a shepherd in the congregation, the shepherd needs to be in the middle, always looking forward and always looking back too and making sure that the body is moving. And so I think we need to, we need to think about, you know, where do we see this in the heart of God and where do we see this in the gospel? And I think a lot of times in the church, this is seen as kind of a sidebar. 
ministry, right? Like, well, we do this and we do this. So we've got this whole group that does racial reconciliation. Instead, bringing it to say, this is the heart of God. This is central to who we are as a people. Because while our identity is in Christ, and we can all amen that and hold that firm, we all come from a bunch of different backgrounds and experiences, and we look different and we act different based on those. And so I think the whether we should talk about it question is we have to. It is critical to knowing and loving one another. You can't, can't love. I always think about my marriage. Um, if I love my wife exactly like I want to love my wife, she isn't going to feel very loved. Um, and not because I'm a bad lover. I think I'm, uh, I'm aware I'm... Is this, is this on tape? Um, she's coming. She receives and gives love differently than I do. Right? And so to love her, I have to know that. I have to know her. And we can't know each other if this giant aspect of who we are based on what we've experienced and where we are in the world and what privileges we've been given or, or haven't been given or have or don't have as a result of who we are, it's impossible to love one another and be unified. Um, and so I've got more to say. I think there's, I think the other thing is how we talk about it, right? Um, we can talk about this and we can be different as the church because we know the author of hope, right? We the world is going to talk about this. And I, I've heard some folks in our midst and some folks back home in South Carolina where I've talked about this a little bit. They're like, man, aren't we just following the world? Like, it, doesn't this lead in a bad place? Like, are we just going to keep on going down this road? And next thing you know, we just, we look exactly like the world. We talk exactly like the world, except we say amen at the end and we give some money and we show up on Sundays, right? That's a bad thing. We don't want to do that. And so I think we kind of, we got to think about this, like, are we talking about this just because the world's talking about it, or are we talking about it because it's the heart of God? Yeah. And um, I pulled out just a couple scriptures of kind of where we see this, and just to think about, you know, what does this mean in the church? Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Lead, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. John 13.34, new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Psalm 133.1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. John 17, 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be in one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. And there's more. Um, so this is central. It's not like a sideline thing. It's central, and we have to talk about it, and it's the only way you can really love and know each other. I would just, um, two thoughts, one really underscoring what Tom said, I, I do think we see an attitude that this is kind of like an elective, like there's an, there's an array of electives, um, and actually I actually had a conversation with, with someone in, at Grace uh, recently where they were, they were basically saying, you know, we're, we're a gospel-centered church, and I appreciate that, and then we have this emphasis on cultural diversity, and, and I'm, I'm good with that, you know, we could be mm-hmm. emphasizing this, we could be emphasizing that, but this is something that, that we're kind of highlighting and, and he specifically mentioned, like, you know, we could, we could be known as the church that has a, a, a killer marriage ministry or a killer children's ministry or these different things, but we're emphasizing that, and that's cool. The difference is when you look at our denomination, we have married people and we have children. We don't have brown people. And when you start to look at leadership and you really start to look at it, so it's important to talk about it in the church because it's an issue, and it's, it's a different issue than these other mm-hmm. things we might say, yes, this is important, this is important, this is important. So just to underscore what, what Tom is saying, it, it's, it has a more gospel centrality that I think, uh, personally, I would have to confess as a white person, I haven't seen, you know, that I often am just really oblivious and blind to the way that it really connects with 
the wall removal activity of Christ and how that then works out in breaking down walls that exist among people. Um, I think it's also important uh, to talk about in the church because the church has resources to talk about it in ways that others don't. And I won't be able to tease this out with the, the time here, but I th- just one example is the way that we understand sin and how it works. So if you were to um, be invisible and follow me around secretly, you would watch me in my day and you would see that I am a sinner and a saint, right? So we, 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 we won't talk now about, you know, the, the gospel and, and the death to life changing work that Christ brings about. But you would see that at work in my life. You would see signs of life and you would see signs of death. The interesting piece is that if you, again, if you were invisible, you might see me with my kids and say, hmm, saw that anger, you know, saw that happening right there. And then you might see me in another instance and kind of see me being gentle with a colleague at work and say, there's some grace. The irony is that you might actually have it backwards because you can't see in my heart. The way I was getting angry with my kids might actually have been the most powerful work of the Spirit because I didn't get as angry as I used to. Mm. (laughs) That was grace. What you witnessed there, you thought was anger, you thought it was sin, it was grace. Mm. When you saw me being nice to my colleague, I was manipulating them. Mm. And you didn't see it. The point is that we understand, our, our deep understanding of sin is that it's in the water. Right? Even though I am, I'm on a path of redemption. I've got life coming in me. But sin is in the water of who I am. And so to the degree that racism is really just a version of selfishness, you know, it starts with my family. So I'm going to go to my school and I want a special deal for my kids, right? I want the teacher to spend extra time with my kids, even though it's a finite resource and I don't want all the other parents to come in and get a special deal for their kids. I want the teacher to get focused attention to my, that's how it starts, right? That's just selfishness. And then it blows out and then it gets, we don't have time to, for the social scientists to tease out how that, that manifests itself in systems and structures, but you see where it goes. So we have, I think, a, I think our understanding of how sin works, that it's not like this is a bad thing, this is a good thing, that we can trust that it's in the water, and that when Paul says, you know, I am the worst, mm. you know, and that we can look at David, who's the closest thing to King Jesus on this earth, and say, he fell. I have to be honest and say, I, I see that in me. You know, we relate to sinners, you know, we can say that that seed is in me. So I, I think we have a powerful resource to understand how broken we truly are and then a real, a, a true message of hope that, that is for all people. So. Thank, thank you both. Um, all right. What do you think white culture is and why is it hard to describe white culture? Mary Catherine, you've offered to answer this. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, I think it's hard to answer this um, because, as we all know, culture is not the same throughout. Culture is not what we would call homogenous. Culture is really mixed up with lots of different influences. Um, and I think it's not just that way for white culture, but it's that way for any culture or subculture someone would identify with. That being said, um, there are patterns that we share um, and identities that we share. Um, and so I'm not going to try to say white culture is. Um, I would say that I have really, um, so I'm in a clinical psychology PhD program, and I have, there's a great reading, I can maybe even share it as a PDF, but um, uh, a really nice study of white racial development, um, and it's by Sue and Sue, Daryl Wing Sue and David Sue, um, and Uh, I took a lot from that reading, and so I'm not going to try to parrot kind of what academics say white culture is. I'm going to more speak from me what I felt like my white culture is to me um, and where I kind of see my whiteness. Um, I think that, um, you know, for me, growing up in the South and in a very, um, a culture that really, a subculture that really values homogeneity, um, just the kind of upper class, um, mostly Christian, Christianese, lots of Christianese speaking, that type of environment. Um, I think I felt very out of place, like as a woman and as a Christian. Um, I often felt, yeah, just a little bit um, 
like it was just so hard to like express what I was feeling with other women um, or it was hard to like kind of ask tough questions. And so a lot of this already is showing you the intersectionality of my identity. It's whiteness, it's southernness, it's southern Christianity. Um, but I think something that I've noticed, you know, just being taught and mentored and supervised, especially um, by black men and women has been just that my communication styles. So I think maybe I'll just talk about that. Um, so a big distinctive I noticed in white culture and in black culture, I think something to me that has been really healing about being mentored and discipled in church by um, black brothers and sisters has been um, just the honestly like the freedom I felt as a white person like because I just felt so out of place in the south like I had to be sweet and nice and couldn't like bring like a, the fuller range of my heart um, to my female friendships and particularly um, and I think um, something I've noticed about white culture is that white culture really values um, like subtext and um, subtlety in communication um, and values, I, I feel, sort of more passive styles of communication than sort of like clearer, maybe active styles of communication. Um, that's just something that I've experienced and I can kind of only speak for me. Um, but I know that's something that I've really, um, that just happens to be something that I've actually struggled with about my whiteness and growing up in a majority white environment. I didn't even realize that that was kind of like hard for me as a woman and as a, um, as a female Christian as well. Um, just feeling like, oh, I can't, it's hard for me to like find other women to talk to about hard questions I have about scripture or my um, doubt about the Lord or like even my anger at God. Um, and I've just been so blessed by um, both Christian and non-Christian um, black brothers and sisters. So just want to share that. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we're going to go back to you, Mary Catherine. Have you ever experienced feelings of guilt or shame when thinking about being white? Definitely. Um, I, uh, growing up just in the school system that I did, um, one blessing of that school system um, in this white flight suburb, which had lots of deeply problematic things and still does, um, is that I was exposed to a lot of civil rights movement education. I do feel that was a big blessing, but it also caused a lot of intense white guilt, not just guilt, but shame. Not just feeling like, man, people I'm associated with did something bad, but like people like me maybe kind of are bad. And um, so that while that education was super important, and I actually like treasure that I had that, I think, you know, just because we know about our sin isn't healing. Just because we know we've fallen short of the law, that doesn't save us. Just because we know that maybe we need Jesus doesn't save us. Only Jesus saves. Our knowledge of our sin is not the thing that's going to light the fire. I mean, it has to be God's Holy Spirit and grace coming to us. I have only begun to experience that in relationship with um, non-white people. And it actually didn't start with black brothers and sisters. It started when um, I was working... Um, alongside and working with um, Arab, um, Arab people, Arab peoples, um, Arab men and women, and um, just them kind of like kind of calling me out as an American and as a white person. I was like, oh, you know, and they would um, hear me talking passionately about, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all my thoughts about these geopolitical this and that, and they would say, well, you, you know, you really understand us, huh? How about your issues at home? And I'd be like, ooh, you know. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, I really thank those um, uh, Arab Muslim and Arab Christian brothers and sisters who really kind of challenged me or like, oh, you, you think you know what's going on with us. Well, how about what's going on with you at home? You from Alabama said Birmingham? I think I heard about that. You know, so, <laughs> um, so I think that I just am so grateful um, to those Arab brothers and sisters. And then also, um, you know, I, I think... Well, can you say the question again? I'm getting off track. Yeah, so the, the second part is, yeah, how have you tried to sort through these feelings? Yes, and so honestly, the main way that I've sorted through it is by having conversations about it with my close black Christian friends mostly. It's been mostly black Christian friends. Like, I, I talk about some with um, black colleagues and friends that aren't Christian, but I've definitely gone so much deeper with my brothers and sisters in Christ because just like you said, this is a great point that our brother Chris has to say that one of the freedoms we have 
because of the gospel is that we know that our self-worth is not in what we do. It's not in what we have done. It's not in what we represent. Um, even when people put that burden of representation on us um, to say what whiteness is or anything like that. But um, I think that it has been so important for me to try to, yeah, have, have conversations about when I feel bad as a white person about something, um, and not just, I should say, with black brothers and sisters, um, and kind of trying to explore and learn from, yeah, um, from their experiences, but also brainstorming with white brothers and sisters. Um, and I also think that doing, beginning to read, not just go to black brothers and sisters and be like, tell me how to not be such a weird white person and bad white person, but um, because that puts a lot of burden on them, um, but also doing my own reading and in reading about uh, just different ideas about how to become more and more actively anti-racist and as Beverly Tatum says, not just being complicit and moving on the moving walkway that is white supremacy. I may not think I'm doing anything actively, but I'm still sort of perpetuating a system of inequity. And so I think finding subtle ways to do that um, are really important. I think one way is in conversation, really speaking up when you hear something that sounds racist um, and that you feel like is really labeling and disproportionately even disadvantaging someone's voice in a group, to do things to correct that. I'll give an example real quick. So at um, Christmas dinner last year, I was home in Alabama. My mom was loving Trevor Noah and was quoting him. She said the N-word, Christmas breakfast. She said the N-word, quoting Trevor Noah. And, um, you know, she was like, well, I was quoting him. I said, well, mom, you know, and I cited the one black friend that my mom has who also works in our home uh, back in Birmingham. And she said, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't say it if she was here. I said, well, mom, I think that's the point. I think that's kind of like gossip. You know, like, why would you, you know, you have to ask yourself, why would you say something that you hear that you wouldn't say when the one black friend that you have, you know, would you wouldn't say it around them? What does that mean? And so that actually ended up being a really good conversation. But then I think on another level, on our block, there are a couple of um, houses and some of our neighbors that um, get really kind of targeted by the police. The police visit their house a lot. And there's a more complex story for why that is. But um, what we've started doing, um, or what I have started doing as just as a white person is to kind of stand out on my porch, sit out on my porch, and let, I think having white eyes on situations that can be really vulnerable between police and people of color can be really helpful. Um, I've also sometimes, even though I'm not recording anything, I just pull out my phone um, when there's a tense situation in my neighborhood between police and people of color. And I think that helps. Like, I think, you know, that's one way that we as white people can share privilege is knowing that our eyes and what we see and what we say, um, sadly, in this, like, broken and devastatingly sinful world, sometimes mean more than a black voice or black eyes on something. And so if I can share my eyes to help keep um, my white brothers and sisters accountable, then I think that's one way tangibly that I feel like um, does not take away my guilt, but it does remove some of my shame. Um, so... Thank you. Um, well, we've hit now on a couple of, uh, I think, you know, uh, sort of controversial buzzwords, right? Talking about what, guilt in relation to white guilt, and you just mentioned white privilege. Um, so that kind of leads nicely into our next question. We've got two more, um, and uh, hopefully we can wrap up pretty soon so we can get to audience questions. Um, but uh, I wrote down, my culture often consists of things so familiar to me that I don't usually notice them. Are there things you notice now that you didn't before about what it means to be white in the U.S.? Um, and we've got Chris and Ana Laura. Who wants to go first? Okay. Um, okay. So I, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind with this <laughs> this question was, um, don't ever bring a potato salad to <laughs> a barbecue hosted by. Um, people of color, um, which is fine, and that makes sense to some of you and doesn't to others, and that's okay. I learned not to do that, and also that there are some things that I took for granted also with sharing food, like putting your hands in the potato chips, that some people I have told that that was a representation of, of my whiteness, and that was not an appropriate thing to do, and that's, I should use a napkin or, or whatever. So um, those are kind of lighthearted things that I learned through my, my dialogue group. Um, I think that... Um, one one thing that I think about too is um, that as a result, or things I notice now that I didn't notice before, really are the racial dynamics and makeup of any group that I um, walk into or place that I'm at. I I'm noticing all the time either that um, 
ah, like there's, I'm like, these are all white people on this bus or, oh my gosh, I'm the only white person on this bus or in, in this restaurant, what's happening? What are the racial dynamics here in this room that I'm walking into? So I'm always, always aware of that in a way that I think I, I wasn't before. Um, and then I'm particularly aware, of course, when, when I'm in the minority. Um, so I really notice and kind of feel like a, like when, um, when I'm the only white person in, in a situation and, um, and I, so I think of, for example, um, I noticed it when I was in Egypt also, um, visiting a friend over there and I was the only white Westerner anywhere that I went. Um, so I was hyper aware of my identity then. Um, I noticed it when I was visiting um, a friend in, in PG County in Maryland and went to the Giant to pick up something and I was the only white person in, in that supermarket. I noticed it when I was at the African American History Museum and just was kind of like, oh, I'm in the minority here. Um, and I and I think that that feel like I, I am sharing this because I treasure actually those moments where I'm, um, I'm when I where I'm uncomfortable in that way and I am awakened or reminded of my identity um, because I think it's it's a way it's a reminder that some people feel like that all the time all the time, every day, they are hyper aware of what they look like and where they are and those racial dynamics. Um, and so, though obviously I'll never know what it's like to be black or Asian or Latino or, or whatever, these moments are, are ways I can connect to some of, what that might, some of what that experience might be like. And so that's valuable to me. Um, yes. So, you know, part of this is that it's, it's the, the fish out of water. It's, it's just hard to be aware. Um, so I, I think it is a gift when, when God is doing something in our hearts and opening our eyes. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's been a few moments where, where God, I think, has kind of entered in and helped me see something reflectively about majority culture. Um, I had one experience just on the metro. You know, it's, it's rush hour, just people. It's just always kind of chaotic, but it... it it somehow I just kind of my my gaze fell on this white person trying to get up the metro and you know I can't even remember if it was a person of color or whatever but you know was was not doing the right thing on the metro you know stand to the right and, and walk on the left whatever and, and eventually it was like you know like all getting snotty about it and then they moved over and then they like you know hustle past they get to the top of the escalator and stop and pull out their phone to figure out where they're supposed to go, like in the way. <laughs> so now I'm yelling at them, right? Like, get out of the way. But white people are just in a hurry. Like, I think that that was one thing that kind of stood out. And I, and like, I, that lodged in my head, and I just started to watch that. And I watched it in myself at my giant, where I'm like, everybody else here, predominantly African American, they're just like chilled out. Like, they're just getting their groceries like normal people. And I'm like, rushing my cart all around. And, <laughs> Kind of things, and it's it's been it was good for me to kind of start to internalize that, and like literally now it's like a reflex where I walk in a giant, I'm like, just breathe. It's just like, <laughs> it's all good. I'm gonna get the groceries. It's gonna be fine. Like I don't. This isn't like a NASCAR race. Um, so that's a simple thing. Um, another a, a book that I found helpful is uh, which is a very completely end around approach to the topic of race is uh, by Wendell Berry. The Hidden Wound, um, and he talks about, so the hidden wound is the wound that was self-inflicted by white people on white people by the work of racism and, and slavery. Um, but he's teasing out, I don't have time to go into it, but, but kind of what we, majority culture uh, kind of has assumed its fundamental assumptions about who we are, what we are, what's valuable, what we're worth, it has a lot to do with progress, kind of this idea of like, you know, we're, we're, we're moving, we're going. And, and it, it does connect with that person on the escalator, I think. Um, we got places to go, we got things to accomplish, we've got ladders to climb. Um, and, and again, I'll only be able to give you a teaser, but basically he, he looks back at the person of simple means who at the end of a day of hard work comes in, gets warm after being cold outdoors and eats a meal and is content. And he says, we've lost that. So I think there's aspects of that that I've started to just try to see at work in my own life. Um, but it's hard. It's admittedly very hard. And we need, we need conversations. We need places where we can talk about it.
Uh, I think I want to go grocery shopping with you now and get that, some of that zen. Um, all right, so last question we've got for the panel um, before we turn it over. What does it mean to love people of another race well? Are there any unique challenges that you encounter in trying to love people of color? Um, and let's start with, uh, with Robert. Yeah, so I want to refer back to what um, Tom was sharing in the scripture that he shared about how we love well, because I think that's, in the broad strokes, Scripture tells us how to love well. And also to Tom's point of, of knowing the person you're loving to get the particulars of that. Um, and where I think have been thinking about how race comes in is to think about sin and racial sin and how racism prevents us from meeting those scriptural definitions of love. Um, and so I think what we need to do is to, to think deeply and identify and address um, those sins. So I think that means uh, repenting of individual sin, um, and it means um, identifying and proactively working against systemic um, racial sin, racism, um, instances where uh, injustice or racism robs people of the dignity that they have as image bearers and um, uh, oppresses them. So uh, looking for that sin, repenting of that sin, both individually and collectively, uh, I think is, is what we need to do to, to love people as um, God has taught us to love people. And to the unique challenges, um, I think there are many unique challenges, and I just want to talk about a few that have come up in my relationship with my wife. Um, first, again, going back to your individual racism or sin. Like, this is another area where I'm going to sin against my wife. And those of you who are married know that your spouse is the person you sin against most. Um, and, and so this is just another uh, aspect of that uh, in that relationship. And to give one example, um, recently my family, we have two cars, and one of our cars was um, needed repairs. And so we borrowed a car from my parents, which I thought was very nice of them to do. And I found that my wife did not want to drive that car from, from my parents. And there would be situations where I thought, well, our lives would be easier, Deidre, if you would just dr you'd drive the van. But she, she didn't want to do it. And so I was imputing to her these, I thought she was just being selfish. Um, but in time, I realized the reason that she didn't want to drive my parents' car is because she had a fear that if she were pulled over by police for any reason, she's in somebody else's car, she doesn't know where the registration is, she's not sure about the, uh, you know, the inspection, it's from another state, and so I was imputing to her uh, selfishness when it was really a very uh, reasonable um, reaction that she didn't want to drive that car because of, of a fear of what might happen if she were pulled over by police. So I needed to learn that um, over time and then to, to repent and apologize to her that I was thinking she was being selfish when, when it was really something else uh, deeper going on. Um, another thing I wanted to share was um, there have been instances in my relationship uh, with my wife where I've had to realize that I can't offer what she needs in a particular time. So. Um, in a period of um, kind of an intense uh, reaction to news, uh, I think a specific example was after the Philando Castile, um, uh, there was no indictment um, of the, the officer who um, shot him. It was a very emotional time for Deidre, and I wanted to love her through that. But there came a time where she needed to be with other black people. And it was hard for me to accept that and, and realize that there was something that I couldn't offer to her in that moment and that she needed um, to be in, in another part of her community um, to, to work through that. And so I've had to uh, think about how I can identify and anticipate those times and to free her up um, to seek out that kind of community and to try to help her um, do that. And then a third thing that's kind of related, um, 
trying to to love my wife and and realize that um, she she also um, can't always feel fully herself in in every context that we're in. And so for me to recognize that there are some contexts, like when she's with her family or when she's with other people of color, that she's going to be able to express other parts of our identity. And for me to recognize that that's not always the case. Like we are often in social situations where she can't feel free to to fully express herself. And so I also need to to be conscious of that and to make sure that we're not just kind of going through through life in a way that kind of doesn't give her those opportunities um, to do that. Great, thank you for sharing. There's a lot of pieces of that. I wish we could we could unpack more. Um, Tom, do you have anything you want to add to this question? Um, just a little. I thought that was poignant and beautiful. Um, you know, I think a lot kind of based on what Robert said too. Knowing what you don't know, um, I think, is one way that we can do it. But I, you know, I think the question was, how do we love people of color in our church and our body? And I just think so much of it is a hunger, a yearning to to want to know more, to learn more. How can I love better? Um, I think one of the pieces I talked about earlier about what does it look like in the church, and how is that different than in the culture? I don't know that I tied those two together in my mind, but you know, the world is going to drive into this and it is going to be a um, nonstop thirst for more. And it's going to end um, with continued thirst because there's no ultimate like hope. There's no ultimate end to this. Um, whereas we, because of Christ, can look to our brother and sister and say, we are the same. We we are both sinners saved only by grace. Um, and so because we've been given all, we can lay down all. Um, and so I just think so much of it is knowing what we don't know and how much are we willing to lay down for our brothers and sisters. Um, and I think, you know, some people might, you might think of that and say, okay, I guess that means I need to stop being white. I need to stop loving Seinfeld or I need to stop, you know. <laughs> all the white stuff that I like, all the white guy things that I do. Um, but I, I do think in the body, and part of this is like being able to love and know your own culture and push back against like your own sense of guilt or shame, but not voice that upon everybody as though that's the same. I, I think one small example from our neighborhood that I've just, it was like a giant epiphany to me, and I was so proud of myself for coming to it. Uh, <laughs> was that I just, I just come to understand the volume difference between like being white, maybe, and being, that, that being white, at least in my white cultural experience, is a, a quieter existence. And any volume increase, you know, means that something else is about to go down or about to happen. And for years, uh, these dudes that hang out on our corner and our block, and they were just loud, and I was just like, something's about to go down. And, <laughs> and then I just learned, like, no, that's just, that's, that's how they hang out. Like, that is what they do. And, and it was like, you know, I'm sure plenty of you are like, yeah, <laughs> nice job, genius. <laughs> uh, but to me, it was like, man, think about all that I've imputed in volume everything that i've attributed to that all the prejudice that i've brought um and that was just like a simple these guys like to give each other a hard time and laugh and it's just at a more decibels than me that's it um and so you know how much can i know where i can love and appreciate and celebrate that even though I may talk at a quieter volume because I'm a white dude. Um. Great, thanks. So we're running about um, 10 minutes behind, but I want to do a couple questions, and then we'll have 
more opportunity in small groups to be able to talk about um, thoughts that you have. Um, but let's, let's do two questions, and we'll take them at the same time and then give people an opportunity to, to respond. So does anyone have a question they want to ask? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think, yeah, yeah, the question is, um, how does church leadership permeate, continue to make this a central part of being a church? Um, I think it's a, it's a challenge. Um, I'll say that because I think um, there are folks in our congregation who ask the good question, are we done talking about, can we talk about, can we get back to Bible study again? Um I don't think that's a wrong, like, it's not a wrong motive. Um, it's a misunderstood piece of this. And so, again, I think it is making sure that we are always having this conversation together. Um, one of the things we talked about a little bit about this event on the front end was what kind of terminology are we using? And how aware are we about the baggage that terminology brings, especially in this town? I mean, I'm a, I come from a conservative Republican side of the aisle. I'm a political guy. I work in that world. It's, some of these terms are really hard if that's your day-to-day -day because it feels like, well, that's what all the progressive liberal people talk about. That's not, I can't talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think we have to say, okay, we got to take off. We got to put on Jesus. Like, what is our identity? Our identity is in Christ. And so what does that do for us to both lay down our life and what is our call to each other? And so, I don't know, I, I think it's an area for prayer, frankly. And I'll give a shout out, Erwin, I know where Erwin is. Did he go somewhere? All right. Some of you saw we're starting a new institute here. Erwin is going to be leading. He's here with us today. And I'm just, I'm really pumped about that because I feel like Erwin's going to give us some bandwidth and resources and ways to think about how do we ingrain this in our everyday and have everybody feel like, yes, amen. I want to know how to love my brother or sister better. So I don't know if I answered that question. Yeah, great. Do we have one more question maybe? Yeah, in the, in the back, the very back. I think like um, accepting discomfort, accepting and like tolerating any distress you feel um, being as a white person, um, just like Anna Lawrence, several other people reference, you know, being in a situation where um, you're the only white person in a room, even um, though that's the majority of my waking hours. Um, there are definitely still times when I feel that, um, especially um, if it's a really hard conversation. Like at, um, sometimes I'll be getting into a really, you know, deep conversation in a seminar I'm at at Howard, and um, it's, it's so funny because I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a blessing, but on the other hand, it's kind of like, dang, like I'm a little invisible right now. But um, there'll be a, a topic that's really challenging for me to hear. One time I was in a personality theories two seminar, and it was about how um, uh, the whole topic of whether or not uh, uh, interracial marriage is a sign of 
personality deficit or pathology. That is a controversial topic. And in that situation, um, you know, that's like one of the more intense situations that I've been in, like in an academic context. Um, and I think um, I did a lot of just listening, um, mostly because I could just feel, th even this impulse on my part is, I think, a very white impulse. When my emotions were rising, I wanted to be more quiet. Um, so anyways, um, I just did a lot of listening that day, but it was funny because um, at the end, <laughs> some of my like, friends came up to me and they like touched me on the way out. Because I was quiet, I'm usually like pretty kind of like loud in a classroom. I love being a student, I love learning. And, um, and they're like, I forgot you were here like and they kind of like they realized some of the stuff they had said and maybe how that had affected me as a white person like hearing that all of their ideas about how dating a white man or um, dating a white woman would be like you know a sign of their self-loathing and a sign of personality deficit or even like clinical pathology on their part and it was just like oh shit like so is it cool that we're friends like you know um you know and you know we had really good conversations after that but that was intense and I think um, as Christians specifically, when we willingly tolerate distress, discomfort, and suffering out of the sake of understanding and loving, not to say that it ends there, because I wanted to have some like kind of follow-up conversation with some of my friends who said some of this stuff in the seminar, but, um, but that letting that happen, you know, that, that's in the pattern of the Lord Jesus. He took on the cross, and he carried it, and then he climbed up on it, and then he died on it. Um, and that wasn't because he did something wrong. That was because he was willing to take on the collective sin of others. So even when my black brothers and sisters are just having a moment or a lot of moments when they're saying things that I feel like are ultimately kind of hurtful about my white identity and my whiteness and who, just who I am, um, that's something that more and more because of Jesus I'm learning to do. I'm learning to tolerate that. Maybe it doesn't always end with that, especially if I have a relationship with a person. We're going to need to talk about it maybe later. Um, but to not have to, like, jump in and be like, hey, actually, like, no, you know, in every situation where I feel uncomfortable, um, to tolerate that suffering, um, even if it's about something about whiteness that I'm not necessarily personally responsible for in that situation. Jesus didn't, you know, avoid situations where he wasn't personally responsible. Um, he took everything, um, accepted all suffering on our behalf. So, Well, let's go ahead and thank all of our panelists. I really appreciate you being here.